those were exactly the key objectives. Yeah, we just wanted to control our own destiny, uh, build something on our own. So we had seen, you know, it's kind of seeing if we can walk the walk, right? We had done it for other people and we wanted to see if we could do it for ourselves and then also control our own destiny. And, and what was important to us was both making money, but also working with good people and, and trying to have a nice life while we did it. This is Pete Moore. I'm here on Halo Talks NYC. I've got two new friends of mine from Toronto who um, started up their own private equity fund after uh, knowing each other for a long time. Uh, some of our listeners uh, are probably finding time to consider their own venture and also thinking about raising their own fund. Um, so there's a, a progression that happens when you get into finance that they're going to talk about. They own a company called Carol Baker Visage, which Integrity Square is a advisor to. Uh, we're excited about the growth trajectory of that company. Uh, so I'm here with Nathan Tam and Justin Dimerescu, and we are on Halo Talks NYC. I want to welcome you guys to the show. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So, um, you know, it's you don't find many private equity funds where guys have been uh, friends since, uh, since freshman year of college. So why don't you give us the the background here, and uh, we'll talk through your story to uh, to get to your first portfolio company together. Sure. Yeah, so... Uh, Nate and I met in uh, university, been friends since then, kind of had similar interests, similar group of friends, ultimately kind of went through school together and then um, ended up on the same path, um, starting with banking and then through private equity, through that just became closer friends, you know, realized that we had similar outlooks on lives and what we wanted to do and didn't really want to do the rat race forever. Uh, I think we both had, you know, a certain entrepreneurial spirit that we shared and um, kind of got together one day and, you know, shared that outlook and, and kind of came up with a plan to, to do things on our own. So just for, um, for, for background, so you guys went to uh, University of Western Ontario, took the very traditional banking path that, that I did myself back in 1994. I worked at Chase Manhattan Bank and then went to business school and then to, uh, to private equity. Um, so you, you just give us the background and, and the brands that you worked for and kind of what you learned from that and, and what gave you the confidence then to say, okay, you know what, I can go do this myself. So I worked two years at Morgan Stanley in Toronto and Justin did two years banking at Scotia. So we did the traditional two and then move on. Um, so we started in investment banking and that was learning the basics, learning how to model, learning what everything in finance meant and getting a level of polish. Uh, then we moved on to the buy side, and it was a completely different lens than, you know, just doing deals and deals and deals. It was, okay, in going from, you know, put these models together, figure this out to, you know, Nathan, Justin, do you like this business, right? So that's kind of taking it as um, through the lens of an investor and seeing what drives the business and kind of thinking through, you know, now it's your money or your fund's money. Do you want to buy this business? And that's really what led us to be more confident in our ability to go buy businesses. So we took all the skills, you know, you need that polish, you need that background from investment banking, shift towards private equity and take that investor's lens. Justin was at Penn Fund in Toronto and I worked at Onyx. And um, after a couple of years for me and, and about three or four years for Justin, um, right, five years, five years. <laughs> um, um, yeah, we decided to try our own thing. And so, uh, Justin, why don't you give me a little background on the business and uh, the franchise base? 
Sure, I'd love to. Uh, Carol Baker Visage is a one-stop shop when it comes to beauty. Uh, we are a retailer uh, and specialize in uh, beauty services as well as products, uh, particularly our own private label brand, Carol Baker Visage. Um, we are in 32 retail locations, um, all by way of franchise. So we are a franchisor. The business has been around for over 45 years, started in 1969. Uh, we have a very strong, uh, loyal brand following, um, and we are located in the province of Ontario. And and this, this company was started by Carol Baker. Why don't you give some background on who she uh, was at the time when she started the mm -hmm. business and what kind of resonated with the customer base at the time? Yeah, Carol was, or still is, a remarkable uh, Canadian entrepreneur. Uh, phenomenal uh, success story. Um, started off in 1969. She was a, she was a model by trade. Uh, obviously, as a result of that, very involved in, in cosmetics and, and makeup, and saw a need to basically develop a professional line of cosmetics for the everyday woman, um, and kind of went out went after that market. Um, starting door by door, um, almost doing like Tupperware parties in the 60s and 70s. Um, and it just it resonated with, with her clients and, and it took off and she went into a, a retail location and then it just grew from there. Yeah, and she also kind of was the visionary between uh, behind doing services at our locations. So bringing in eyebrow waxing, facials, and, and a lot of the recurring services that bring our clients back, in addition to just selling them product, what really makes Carol Baker Visage special is that recurring nature. Uh, so, you know, similar to guys find a hairdresser and they, and they stay with them for 20 plus years, these ladies find their esthetician that they like and that they come to every two to three weeks, and it's like clockwork. They just keep coming back, and, and we've got a really great program called the Beauty Club that Carol also invented. And it's a membership program where our customers pay $25 a year uh, to get perks and, and deals and, and discounts as they go. And um, that's really the, the crux of our business, this recurring service nature. So, so when you guys were, were talking about this probably, you know, late at night after uh, the model was done or the presentation was, was printed for the next, uh, next day's meetings, um, how'd you guys feel about, you know, taking this leap or, what, you know, what kind of risks did you assess and, and how did you kind of bat that back and forth to say, all right, you know, we've seen some people do this before. We're probably going to do one portfolio company to start, you know, mm -hmm. and, and my eggs are in that basket and they're not in a diversified fund where I'm getting a paycheck every two weeks. So t tell us you know, what goes through your mind and what gives you that, what, what changes your risk profile to say, you know what, I, you know, I have the confidence to do this and I'm not doing it on my own, which I think is also an important component to this. I'm not sure necessarily anything changed. I think we both had the type of personality where we were confident in our abilities and I think had a certain amount of risk appetite. And I think that's been true from day one. So I think we got to a point where um, we felt we had enough experience to, to take the risk. Um, and I think it's just a, it's all about timing. Uh, it was right for, for Nathan. It was right for me. And I think when you have... Uh, a friend and a business partner you can rely on to go and do that challenge. It makes it easier than, than doing it on your own. Um, and then we've got, you know, supportive families and wives that obviously play a big factor. in sure. And it also helped like knowing that we, you know, we're in this together as friends and as partners, 
even when we went to pitch and meet other owners, I think they like that too, knowing that you know their their legacy and their destiny is in two people's hands. And going lone wolf would have been pretty lonely in here, so we're glad yeah. we did it together. Yeah. So when you guys um, decided to make the uh, make the break from your private equity funds or respective funds that you were working for, um, did you leave there and then started fundraising, started looking for deals? What What was that time horizon between? I think it's important for people to understand who are entrepreneurs or for, or doing pledge funds that just because you leave a one place like there's no guarantee you're going to find a deal, mm-hmm. you know, in a, in a certain amount of time. So our our situation was a little bit different. We didn't do a traditional search fund in that we self funded. Um, fortunately, I had left Onyx and and sold the business and then had a little bit of cash out and then Justin um, and his wife both do very well. Um, so we both had some capital and we had some network to that supported us. So we were able to start looking at deals right away. And that's how we started, as opposed to putting together a fund and raising the money and kind of taking a few months that way, we just started going. So it's riskier in that, you know, we had to eat broken deal fees if they happened and we weren't exactly sure, you know, we had to fund our own lights and we had to fund that startup cost. Uh, but we decided that it was worth it for us just to get going. Yeah, I mean, not to scare any of your listeners, but I think in retrospect, I think, at least I realized it was riskier than yeah. than, than we might have thought at right. the get-go. Um, as Nathan mentioned, we gave ourselves a year, which I think seemed like a decent amount of time. I think practically speaking in the world of private equity, it's not a lot of time. I think the industry is a needle in the haystack type of industry. Um, and I think you know established funds with more infrastructure and resources struggle to do deals in that amount of time. So we might have been a little bit optimistic and starry-eyed but you know i think luck went our way and, and we got lucky and, and from a standpoint of you guys starting the fund was that because of the genesis to um, control your own destiny to be your own boss to potentially get your hands deeper into companies you know and be more of a entrepreneur and an operator or what what was the what were the key objectives when you guys decided to go out on your own to create ashbridge yeah, those were exactly the key objectives. Yeah, we just wanted to control our own destiny, uh, build something on our own. So we had seen, you know, it's kind of seeing if we can walk the walk, right? We had done it for other people and we wanted to see if we could do it for ourselves and then also control our own destiny. And and what was important to us was both making money, but also working with good people and, and trying to have a nice life while we did it. So we tried to mix all of them together and and we've been fortunate enough that's going quite well with Carol Baker. Yeah, and what's the, ba- uh, what's the basis uh, for the name Ashbridge? Uh, Ashbridge Partners was the street is the street that I live on. <laughs> so we basically took, I live on Sarah Ashbridge Avenue and we took one of the words and added partners to it. Gotcha. Okay. Most, that was creative. It's more creative than somebody looking for a Greek name that hasn't been used before. <laughs> Pluto Capital. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, um, so from the day that you guys left the firm and started up Ashbridge, you know, how many deals did you look at um, before you got to uh, CBV? We, we actually tried kind of hitting the pavement, kind of originating deals on our own, like doing some industry stuff. I think we quickly realized that that probably wasn't the most practical route. So we started to go the more traditional, you know, advisors, accountants, uh, kind of get into those networks. And we saw a lot of deals. A lot of them were kind of not up our alley. I think one of the reasons we, we started going down this path of doing Ashbridge is we saw an opportunity in the market um, to attack the smaller end of the market where there wasn't a lot of professional private equity capital. So when we started focusing on those deals, we started to get more traction. But I would say we looked at you know 20 to 30 different deals. 
we got lucky pretty early on with a proprietary deal uh, that came from a family friend. And we jumped right into that. And we were pretty heavily into diligence almost right away uh, on that deal while we were looking at other deals. And that took up a big part of our first year in addition to sourcing. So, so when, when did you get to Carol Baker? How'd that come through your... Uh, that was through network. network. Yeah, that was through network. That was through... Non, non-auction process. Non-auction process. We sat down with the, with the founders, um, basically looked them in the eye and said, you know, we think we'd be a good fit for you and told them that we'd treat them fair and treat the business fair and give it all we had. And he looked at us and said, let's, let's do it. Great. Yeah. But, but really right at the end of that one year. So we got, yeah. got lucky from that perspective. Very lucky. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's definitely a um, there's a deal fatigue and, and level of frustration that uh, that you see with early stage funds. And I think you know, I, I worked at Brockwood Moran and Partners, and, and one of the first deals they did was Gold's Gym, which basically everyone in the country knew what Gold's Gym was. So it kind of put them on the map as a as an investor. And I feel like there's some correlation between what they did there and uh, with you guys having Carol Baker Massage as a brand that people know in Ontario. It definitely kind of puts you in a public lens, which is, is very powerful for looking at other deals and being on, on the radar screen. And sometimes people don't realize necessarily the size of the business, uh, which might sometimes benefit, you know, the private equity firms. So yeah. Crunch is an example. People thought that was a, a thousand club chain uh, yeah. and it had like 19 clubs when, uh, when it was bought uh, yeah. by private equity. Um, so w- when you looked at this brand and you looked at the operational uh, infrastructure of the company and you looked at the fact that you guys probably going to need to really go in and roll your sleeves up. Um, how did you think about that either from, from purchase price standpoint, from a, from a risk profile, you know, I think I'm probably a glass half full. Um, so I'm like, you know, just give me an asset and I'll, you know, figure out how to grow it. So, so what are some of the things that you guys learned along the way? And maybe some of the things that sometimes you, you don't know what you bought until you, you bought it yeah i think we were probably pretty one-dimensional when it came to theories on valuation i mean we came from traditional private equity where um, buying smart is is a big factor and and usually not overpaying for assets is is key and i think you know again we were we were looking at the smaller end of the market and i think just generically those companies go for less so i think we we kind of had a cap uh of five to six times we wanted to pay for businesses so that's generically how we thought about valuation. I think all these types of businesses need a certain level of professionalization. I think Carol Baker Visage was, was no different. We definitely kind of identified that as a key area of, of, of value creation for us. You know, despite the fact that they've been around for 45 years and it, it had grown nicely and, and developed into a very nice asset, um, they were still doing a lot of things like a family business would, would do things. And, and so that was definitely definitely an area of focus for us. Yeah, they, we saw a lot of good bones. So, you know, when you go into a house, you look for the bones and it had really great bones. So it had been around for 40 years, had a really recurring loyal customer base and the team was strong. So the team was strong, it was just being run like a family business. So it needed some professionalism to kind of set it up for future growth. So that's what Justin and I did. We didn't change and reinvent the wheel. We just added things that, you know, the owners were ready to retire and they were just ha- being comfortable. So we added them the manpower and the drive just to add the things that the franchisees wanted to bring in, reinvigorate the brand, make sure the image was good and just bring everything from, you know, a six or a seven to an eight or nine to, to let it go. Gotcha. Yeah. You know, it's interesting from, uh, 
for, for a services retailer to be based in a mall. And it seems like, at least in the U.S., that a lot more traffic, daily traffic and weekly traffic, is trying to be pulled back into the mall, mm-hmm. um, as we've seen with uh, some larger box retailers that are going by the wayside. And um, from a standpoint of um, of trying to get people to, to view that as their destination for their services or for health clubs, you know, there's definitely a paradigm shift now uh, from the strip centers down, you know, now to, to the mall as a destination where Carl Baker has been in the mall the entire time. So do you feel like that pendulum swing back towards the malls, um, you know, is going to continue to proliferate and, and that's going to help your business? Yeah, I think malls are evolving into kind of experiential destinations. Um, so I think the malls that have been on the forefront of that have, have been faring a lot better than, than others. And I think uh, we are in most of the malls and we are a destination. Um, so we've we've benefited as a result. And I think, you know, our brand is even in more demand as, as malls continue to evolve and kind of see that as being kind of the crux of their future. Yeah, and I'll second that. And when speaking with landlords, you know, from when we first started the business four, four plus years ago to even now, you know, now we're the, we're service experience and we're in cosmetics and beauty. Mm-hmm. And so those are, you know, both areas that are both doing very well in malls and, and areas that landlords are trying to add. So it's been a real boon to our business. So you guys have a, an interesting business model from the franchisor level. Um, one, you are, you're selling product uh, exclusively down to the franchisee base. Uh, and you also have a, a more traditional royalty model on the services. Um, and you also have a membership model, which are three somewhat, you know, usually you have those as, as a standalone mm-hmm. uh, in a business, but you have all three of those. So how do you think about the, you know, continuing to optimize that business model and the benefits, um, you know, of that kind of royalty stream and revenue streams that are that are pushed down to the location basis? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's nice in a lot of respects because... Um, there's a lot of attractive attributes that go along with the franchise business, namely the royalty. And, you know, there's some diversity in terms of where that royalty is coming from. Uh, there's a stability inherent in that. So there's some nice cash flow characteristics that come from that side of the business. And then there's a lot of growth and kind of attractive margin that come from the other side of the business, which is the distribution side of the business. And, and luckily, we're, we're not distributing widgets. We're distributing high, high margin private label cosmetics. Um, so I think that's you know, the real value of our business is is the the combination of those two things. I think relying on any one, the business wouldn't be nearly as successful, and it really needs both. But in terms of maximizing both sides, I think you know we've been we've been growing the franchise base and and trying to uh, optimize each location in terms of services because that's what we see as our bread and butter. That's what differentiates us, and that's where we earn our royalty. So introducing more services to the portfolio um, will increase that royalty. And we, we've been increasing it very nicely since we've owned it and uh, getting more products into the portfolio. You know, To add to Justin's, I also think that's where it gives us our competitive advantage. Um, so we're best in class service and we're really service first. So that helps us both when we compete with other competitors in the mall. You know, people come to us for their aesthetic services first and then they buy our product because they fall in love with the esthetician. So that's a much better spot to be in when you have the Max and the Sephora's. You know, people come to us for their eyebrow wax every three weeks. That's just kind of set in stone, right? So all the other competitors can come through, but the service is really what buoys our business. And then when, you know, you think about online and people think about online, 
can't get your eyebrows done online. So that's really what helps us, again, to, as Justin said, it's the service first, and then you bring in the product and the membership to kind of add to that recurring nature. That, that, that's the biggest competitive advantage that we have. So, so you do the facials and you do the, um, the eyebrow waxing, which is obviously recurring on a monthly basis for, for your uh, client base. What, what else do you see as uh, potential additions to uh, the services that, that fit underneath the, the CBV umbrella? I think there, there are so many, um, you know, beauty is, is rapidly evolving and there's new kind of science every single day and some of it's fat and some of it works. Um, so we're always trying to read up and, and go to trade shows and, and every single time we go, we've come up with five new ideas. I think um, more, more kind of imminent is, is anything to do with brows and lashes. Um, and, and we kind of recognized that a couple of years ago and, and did a big launch with lash extensions. And there's a lot of um, complementary services that kind of can be tacked onto that, like brow extensions. Um, we did microblading, which is semi-permanent tattooing. And so there's a, we've laid the foundation for those types of services, but there's a whole bunch of other ones that go along with that that we're gonna be focusing on in the short term. And then ear piercing, something that, that, that you've just uh, launched as well, is that correct? Ear piercing we've been doing for a very long time. We've been an industry leader in the ear piercing, but we've recently uh, launched nose piercing and, and cartilage piercing. I don't know, Nate, you want to talk about that? Yeah, so ear piercing is one of our you know, strongest points to the business. We're known within Ontario and across Canada as the best ear piercing destination, especially within malls. We've got a nice niche in that our estheticians and our tech, uh, technicians are trained and have done hundreds of ear piercings. That's been the biggest boon for our business, uh, and, and a big driver that's upcoming, like, like you guys said, is cartilage piercing, which is you know around the ear, but just not on the earlobe, and nose piercing. So we historically had been able to do that from you know years one to 25, but it was kind of blocked for any retailers to do it for the last 10 to 15 years in Ontario. Uh, but recently, they've just made changes to re-allow that. So that's going to be anywhere from 10 to 25% of our ear piercing business, which is a major part of our business, and it's going to be a real boon for us going forward. Great. So at this point, you've got uh, 31 locations in Ontario, one in Alberta. You guys have owned the business for about four and a half years. So from a standpoint of you know, your first big portfolio company, um, getting a realized return here obviously makes sense for you guys to continue to grow Ashbridge and show your investors you know, what kind of results you've been able to achieve by actively managing and, and overseeing the, the growth of the business. Um, so for the next owner of the business, you know, whether it's growth equity or whether it's a majority control deal, you know, where do you see the opportunity for going next or, or to fill out the rest of Ontario? Um, so just give us a little bit of sense of, you know, in three to five years, where could this company be? Yeah, I think when we, when we initially bought the company, we saw three main avenues for growth. Um, one was modernizing the brand. The second was just professionalizing the business. And the third was location or unit growth. We've really spent most of our time with the first two, uh, just because there was so much low hanging fruit. And, you know, th there still is in, in a lot of respects, you know, more, more room to grow on those fronts. On the new location uh, growth, we've done some, but definitely hasn't been our main focus. And I think um, if there was kind of a phase two of this business from a private equity perspective would definitely be on, on unit expansion. You know, we're 31 locations in Ontario. The concept has definitely been proven out. 
we've opened one location uh, in another province. That location is doing well, so I think we, we've proven that the, the brand can travel. And, and so, you know, this thing should be across Canada, if not across North America. Um, we probably see, you know, 60 to 70 units across Canada, a lot more in the U.S. And I think someone with the ability and competence of rolling out units can do really well with this thing. Because like I said, you've got 45 plus years of experience and equity and a proven concept that just needs to be blown out. And, and you mentioned a good point as well. Just, just for us, it is important to realize a, a win, both from our you know, lifestyles perspective and for our investors. And also part of, you know, as, from a personal standpoint, part of expanding is just being able to travel more. And Justin and I both have young families, and that's just not something that you know, fits our life as well. But the, the options are there. Like the, the opportunity is there to take it across Canada. And, and frankly, we've had a lot of interest. And whether it's good or bad, it's just a, a lifestyle and balance perspective that, that we can't travel as much. So, so there's a franchisee you know, pipeline that, that's been built. Mm -hmm. um, there's also uh, opportunities to put a franchise agreement uh, in place, come to the U.S. market. Uh, from a standpoint of looking at what some of the groups have done in the U.S., whether it's um, you know, Amazing Lash is probably a good comparable where they've got a membership-based monthly recurring business model um, or Massage Envy. You know, when you think about the next buyer um, or the next partner putting in equity to grow the business, do you see some of those types of additional benefits to the franchisee, to the franchisor, you know, as, as feasible to, to put in place with the right, you know, billing and software systems? Yeah, I think generically, like as the business grows, I think everyone benefits. Um, you know, we are a brand at the end of the day. Um, and brand recognition drives traffic to the store. So the larger we grow, everyone benefits. And, and I think there's definitely an opportunity in the States. I don't think there's, there's a lot of competitors like us. Um, Blue Mercury comes to mind as, as a quasi-comparable. I know they're doing quite well, but I think as far as representation goes, we're, we're fairly unrepresented in North America. Yeah, and, and again, the, the benefits that we talked about before in terms of you know being an experience, being in a great space in terms of cosmetics and beauty, that really is an, is an, is an advantage for us to get in and get new locations. In terms of scale too, the bigger we get, the, the more opportunities we have, you know, operationally as well. So in terms of size, some of these suppliers, they look at MOQ, which is minimum order quantity. You know, at a certain size, we're limited in what new products and services we can add. And as we grow locations and get bigger, it really opens up in terms of what types of products and suppliers you can work with too. So there's a benefit of both brand and then from operations as well. All right, great. Well, uh, I want to thank you guys for, uh, for coming down and uh, sharing your story. We're excited to see the next uh, generation of uh, Carol Baker Visage in Canada and also the U.S. and who knows where else uh, internationally uh, it could go. So great job on what you guys have built. And uh, we look forward to uh, having you guys back on the talks for your next portfolio company in less than a year. Thanks, Thanks very much. All right. Thanks.